New Hope Church. How are we doing today? You guys, uh, you guys sound amazing here, and I'm sure you sound amazing at all of our campuses. Welcome to those of you that are here at Central. Welcome to all of you at all of our campuses, at our Sanford campus, Garner campus, uh, upstairs in the coffee house, whether you're watching online or on TV. Uh, welcome one and welcome all. However you're joining us, we are, we're privileged that you would be spending this time together with us. I uh, have a very uh, distinct privilege that I'm going to ha- share in just a moment. Before I do that, I want to share with you guys just two uh, quick praises. The first is this. Uh, today, I am celebrating uh, with my wife our 12-year wedding anniversary, and I just want to give praise to God for that. If, if you need proof that God exists, it is that that woman would choose me and stick with me for these 12 years, and I, I think she's committed for the long haul. So if, uh, if you see her today, just walk up to her and say, bless you, and she'll know exactly what you mean, okay? So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. There has been some awesome stuff taking place here in the worship center at Central Campus all weekend long, we've been having our Insight Leadership Conference. There's been uh, pastors and leaders across the Carolinas and beyond that converged here. And God did incredible things. You would be so proud of your pastor and of uh, the staff team. Moreover, the volunteers who gave so much time and commitment. And I'm just telling you, what took place here was absolutely amazing. It's really difficult to put it into words. But what we believe, what we a trust is that when we're investing in leaders and then they're taking that back to their churches, that not only are churches being changed, but actual cities are being changed by what was taking place here uh, throughout the weekend. So here's the deal. I just want to, on the count of three, can you just give your biggest clap, shout of praise that, that you can muster? Because awesome stuff is, was taking place all weekend long, and we're just kind of on the coattails of it right now. So on the count of three, one, two, three. It truly, it truly has been just a, just a phenomenal, phenomenal weekend. So here's, here's the pleasure that I, that I have. Um, I'm going to be introducing our guest speaker today. And uh, Pastor Benji mentioned in the newsletter that goes out to all of our campuses on Thursday that he had a surprise uh, in store during worship today. This is that surprise. We have a guest speaker. His name is Steve Saccone. And uh, months ago, I said uh, to Pastor Benji, when I knew Steve was coming, I said, can I have the honor of introducing him? Typically, Pastor Benji will do that for our guest speakers. And he said, absolutely, you can do that. And, and, and here's, here's why. Have you ever had a friend, or you've had two friends, but they don't know one another, but you're like, I would love for you guys to meet each other because you would love one another? And, and that's, that's kind of the thing. I want, uh, I want all of you to meet my good friend, Steve Saccone, but I also want Steve to meet all of you because... I'm, uh, there is no greater honor than to stand up here on this stage and preach to, to New Hope Church, both here and at all the campuses. And so I just wanted him to have that, that privilege of meeting all of you as well. So let me tell you a little bit about Steve. Steve is a, uh, is a leadership guru. In fact, he's written two books on leadership uh, that we're going to have out at our resource center at all the campuses today. Just want to let you guys know about that. Uh, one of the, the books he wrote, his most recent, is called Protege, Developing Your Next Generation of Church Leaders. And... Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about Protege in just a moment. He also wrote another book called Relational Intelligence, and uh, I love the byline on this. It's how leaders can expand their influence through a new way of being smart. It's all about leading through relationships. And if you are in the connections ministry in any way, shape, or form here or at our campuses, you have benefited from these books and you didn't know it because I've been stealing like a bandit from it. For, 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 for some time. So it's, there's fantastic, fantastic nuggets in there. So I want to let you guys know about that. Steve is currently the executive pastor at a church uh, in, in the San Francisco, San Jose uh, Bay area. Uh, it's called the Highway Community. 
uh, several years ago, he spent time uh, on staff at a little church. Maybe you've heard of it up in Chicago called Willow Creek. Just a, a, a little thing up there with uh, Bill Hybels uh, doing great stuff. He left there to go to a church out in Los Angeles called Mosaic. And uh, the, that was the church that, that Steve and I uh, got, got to know one another in. And at Mosaic, Steve led a, uh, a, a leadership cohort called Protege, just after the same name as the book. And I had the privilege of being a part of the Protege experience. It's a two-year leadership cohort. So the, the reason I'm standing on this stage today and any other time that I do so is because a guy named Steve Saccone took a risk on a guy named Chad Lunsford and invited me out to Los Angeles and invested in me for two years. So it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. As a, uh, as a, me, as a diehard St. Louis Cardinals fan, the only flaw that I can see in Steve Saccone is that he is a Chicago Cubs fan, but we'll, we'll forgive him for that. But uh, you'll probably want to cheer for this, or a lot of you anyway. Uh, Steve uh, spent his childhood in Wilmington, North Carolina, so there might be some of you that, that are like that. Um, as a dookie, this is hard to say, he is a diehard UNC Tar Heels basketball fan. So... I thought some of you would want to some of you would, would want to celebrate that, but uh, Steve is just a fantastic person, and uh, as, as wonderful of a job he's, he's going to do up here in just a moment, bringing the word of God. What I love most about Steve is that when you sit down and have a conversation with him, you always walk away better. There were times when I was in the leadership co- cohort that Steve would sit me down and he would he would chastise me, and I didn't even know I was being chastised. I mean, he was just he, he's just such a phenomenal person. You always walk away from conversations with him better than when you came. So in just a moment, when he comes up here, would you guys give him a new hope welcome that we always give to all of our guest speakers? And I especially want you to do it today because it's just a dear friend of mine. So without further ado, would you guys please welcome to all of our campuses, my good friend, Steve Sacombe. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Steve. Nice to meet you. I guess we're friends now. Although some of you don't like me already because of the Tar Heel thing, so forgive me, please, as we get rolling. <clears throat> Chad, I've known for, I guess, almost 10 years now, and um, he's one of those guys that I feel is one of the rare people that you meet that's the real deal, you know, that, that is who he says he is. Yeah. And um, he's the one I think needs the standing ovation. Don't, you know, you can save it for later some other time. But yeah, and um, he, he's made an imprint on my life in, in his character and personhood and humility. And um, there's just some people that you run into in life that they, they leave an imprint, and he is one of them. Another person that's left an imprint on my life is a guy from the scriptures that I want to talk about today. It's a guy named Joseph. It's from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The last 14 chapters have this amazing story with all kinds of layers and details to it about this man named Joseph. And one of the things about Joseph is he faced ongoing adversity. And it wasn't just one thing or two things. He, He faced a series of unfortunate events. And when difficult things come our way, your way, my way, and I know they already have, I know they're going to come again, right? Perhaps you're even in a season of adversity right now. It's difficult, right? It's sometimes difficult moving through them. It's difficult waiting on maybe God to show up and change your circumstances. It sometimes is difficult even to get past what's happened to you in your mind, even though you're on the other side of it. We may have a hard time letting go. We're dealing with whatever we're dealing with. And we often have a difficult time seeing the purpose behind the circumstances. 
We, we mull over in our head, perhaps, why didn't this happen? Or why did this happen? Or maybe we cling to the mantra of, if only. If only this would have happened, or if only this wouldn't have happened. And those kinds of thought, thinking go on and on. In the story of Joseph, what we'll discover, and you may be familiar with the story already, but what we'll discover is that he had many bad breaks come his way. He had circumstances that were certainly, uh, certainly felt like they were going against him. Yet in the midst of it all, what's amazing, one of the things about the story is that he keeps moving through it. As I've approached this narrative, I've learned so much about his life and so much in my own life and the adversity that I have faced. In fact, some adversity that I'm in right now in my life. And I cling to some of the truths in this story. Well, it's perhaps the most important thing in this story is how Joseph experienced God in the midst of the trials, the hardships, the adversity. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. The anthem of Joseph's life revolved around adversity. And as we move through this narrative, we can learn how he handles everything. And more importantly, we discover how God meets him in that place and how God can meet us in that place. So a little background about Joseph's life. You perhaps know some of this, but he was the second youngest brother of 12. He, he was a teenager at the time. We pick up the story, at least at the beginning. And one day his father who he deemed Joseph his favorite son. He was the golden boy of the family. And so as a sheer act of raw favoritism, his father Jacob gives Joseph a coat. Some translations say a coat of many colors. And I know some of you might be thinking, if I got a colorful coat as I opened up a present, you'd be thinking, is this a white elephant gift of some kind? Or, or you know, is this present from grandma or grandpa that live a thousand miles away that have no idea what I wear and they think I wear this still or you know or something like that but but this isn't what Joseph experienced in those days in fact clothing was a statement of status and certain colors meant certain things and, and for example purple had connotations of royalty so this coat was a visible expression of raw favoritism from Jacob Joseph was his dad's favorite he was the golden boy so he wears the robe he wears the robe a lot and every time he wears the robe, he feels like dad's favorite kid. He feels special. And every time he wears the robe, his brothers are reminded that they're not loved as much by dad as their younger brother. As you can imagine, resentment ensues in their hearts. Jealousy, hatred. The coat becomes this living metaphor of how an imbalance of love and affection from a parent can erode the core of a family. And to make things worse, Joseph, in his 17-year-old young age, immaturity really, he's insensitive to his brothers. One day he has this dream, actually has two dreams. We're not told if the dream specifically is from God or not. But he has this dream and, and he goes on to tell his brothers about both dreams and essentially, the, the, the meaning of the dream come down to this, that they, they, he says to them, one day you're going to bow to me and become my servants. I mean, you would think he would not tell them that information, that he would be quiet. But he's like rubbing it in, flaunting it at some level. And he's not sensitive to the fact that his brothers are already competing for dad's love. And things get so bad as the story unfolds. 
that they decide they're going to get rid of him. Here's where we pick up the story. Chapter 37, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into a cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah, one of the brothers, said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. I mean, that's kind of brutal logic, right? I mean, think about it. If we kill him, we're not going to get anything out of it. So we'll just sell him, which I guess is a little better, but... The text continues. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern, sold him off for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So basically his brothers sell him to this group of business people who are on the way to Egypt for about, in today's money, might be the equivalent of about $215. Not very much, of course. In an attempt to cover it up, they take Joseph's coat, they cover it in goat's blood, they bring it to Jacob. They deceive him to think Joseph is dead. And life goes on. Jacob, of course, grieves for a long time. His brothers have to live with the reality that they're not going to know or see probably their brother for the rest of their lives. I mean, how would you like to be 17 years old, ripped away from your family, sold into slavery, taken to a foreign country where you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know anyone, where you've basically become a piece of property? In a matter of days... Joseph has gone from being his father's favorite son to a common slave. The life he thought he was going to live was gone. Just like that. For all he knows, he'll never see his dad again. He'll never see the rest of his family. His dad has grieved the loss of his you know, second youngest and favorite son. His brothers realize that they've been estranged from their brother. And through this story... We get a glimpse of how quickly things can change in life, how we're not as in control as we think we are, how how there's so much that that we that's so fragile in life and, and that we can't really hold on to like we think we can. Things are good one moment and the next. The joy is choked right out of us. The circumstances are incredibly different. As we reenter the story against all odds, circumstances do begin to change for Joseph makes us hopeful as we're reading the story. Circumstances turn around. Back in Egypt, he's sold again, but he's sold to a wealthy, prominent military official named Potiphar, one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. He works in Potiphar's house, and he impresses him with his character, really, that was unlike any of the other slaves in the household. And here's where we pick the story back up. But, but as we read through this, think about this. We see this over and over in Joseph's story. The Lord gave Joseph success in everything he did. Follow this text. The Lord was with Joseph that he, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of Egyptian master. That's Potiphar. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant, which attendant doesn't quite get to probably what we think. Attendant was, in that context, was like the COO of a major empire, a major organization. I mean, it's the same word that's used when you hear about Joseph and, or Joshua and Moses, you know, what Joshua was to Moses. So Potiphar 
puts him in charge of his household, and he entrusts his care, to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So Joseph does a remarkable job. Potiphar puts him in charge of everything, everything except the food he ate. So in other words, Joseph is taking care of Potiphar's business and Potiphar is out playing golf. Or something like that. Whatever they did for fun in those ancient times, right? But this is, this is the, the status and, and what Joseph had earned. This is the success that followed him because of God's favor. And things are going well for Joseph. And, and as you're in the story and you think, okay, fairy tale ending is coming, right? Happily ever after is coming, right? No, things shift again. And he's entering another very, very difficult situation. And, and it's all the while while he's trying to be faithful to God. He's trying to maintain his integrity, And he's gotten bad break after bad break, even at this point in the story. And then Potiphar's wife comes and tries to essentially seduce him. An alluring temptation comes in front of Joseph because he has caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. Which, as the text reads, it's not all that surprising because it says literally that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now, if you want to imagine what Joseph looked like, Imagine Chad Lunsford, (laughs) handsome, well-built, the gentleman of all gentlemen, right? I mean, that's maybe a picture into who Joseph was, or maybe not. (laughs) One day, Potiphar's wife won't take no for an answer. She continues to tempt him, right, day after day. And Joseph, he's focused on taking care of the affairs of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife is focused on having an affair with Joseph, and she persists and persists. And verse 11, chapter 39, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside, right? She must have sent them off to do errands or something. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me, which had a forceful overtone to it. Sex now. It's kind of what she was saying. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. Now, if you have a little bit of cynicism in you, you might be saying, poor Joseph, this attractive, powerful woman, right? is like falling at your feet. Let me play the violin. But no, it was actually a worst case scenario. Because think about it. Yes, she was an attractive, powerful, beautiful woman, as we read in the text. But she was also the wife of the person with some of the greatest power in the world, which also made her a powerful person, which also made her the person that has his voice, right? And and, and can influence him probably more than anyone else. And if he, if Joseph does what she wants, he loses his integrity, of course, if he gives into the temptation. And if he doesn't do what she wants, he may lose still the security of everything that, that has come to him in his life, the success that has followed him. He may still lose all that, right? Because she could turn on him. So he's in this situation that's sort of strange. It's a mix of choosing to give in to temptation or to risk losing everything anyways. It's a lose-lose situation, no doubt. And basically what happens is Potiphar's wife grabs Joseph by the coat and he runs. He runs right out of the coat, which is now the second coat that he's lost, right? I guess he's standing there in his boxers or his ancient tidy whities of some kind. I don't know, you know, it's just where my mind goes. Sorry, I digress. After maintaining his integrity, right, he says no, he runs, he flees. You may think 
and this may be what you think in your own life too, you may think he ought to be rewarded for doing the morally courageous thing. He did the right thing. He, he, he maintained his integrity. But instead, severe false accusations come Joseph's way. Serious ones. She does the unthinkable. She cries rape. We're reminded, I certainly am, that doing the right thing doesn't always lead to immediate blessing. In this case, doing the right thing actually led to more diversity. I'm sorry, adversity. Joseph does the right thing. But when Potiphar's wife tells her husband of the alleged rape, as you would expect, he's enraged. He's angry. Now, this is speculation, but he likely doesn't believe her because this man was a ruthless, merciless ruler. And in that day, some circumstance like that, he would have certainly executed someone. And I don't know, maybe he felt guilty or something because Joseph had done so much for him. We're not totally sure. The text doesn't tell us. But instead of executing him, he, he throws him into a dungeon. But, but remember, it's for a crime he didn't commit. It's unjust. And Joseph's worst fears were once again becoming a reality. He's gone from the coat of many colors to an unjust prison cell. His life has been one never-ending story of adversity. It's filled with hardships and trials time and time again. A story of a guy whose life has been treated unfairly. This is it. It's a journey that demanded perseverance and integrity. But here's the thing. Joseph doesn't know that God's providence will later be revealed. One day soon, he doesn't know this at this point, but one day soon he will become the prime minister of this nation. What he doesn't know is that one day his brothers who sold him off in slavery will fulfill the dream. They're going to come to Egypt during the famine, desperate, on the verge of starving to death, and Joseph is going to be there to save them and thousands more. What Joseph does know is that he was ripped away from his family at 17 years old, that he's been falsely accused and deemed guilty, thrown into prison, that he just keeps getting bad break after bad break. Despite working hard to honor God and be the right kind of person and maintain his integrity, he keeps getting jolted by unfair circumstances. And some of us have felt that in our life. You've asked, why God? Or why me? Or why did that have to happen to me? And there certainly aren't easy answers. And the pain of perhaps what you've been through is not easy to cope with. And in no way am I implying that. But in Joseph's life, he knows adversity. But he doesn't know what God is ultimately doing through it. He doesn't know that God has a greater redemptive purpose. He doesn't really know, as far as we can tell, that God's providence is at work. And it brings us all to the same question that I think we all ask at some point in our lives. Perhaps we're asking it now. What's the point of all this? What's the point of all the adversity? In the midst of it all, God always has a greater purpose. We can't always, in fact, we usually don't know why circumstances happen like they do. And over the scope of this narrative, Joseph discovers God's purpose. And over the course of our life narrative, God wants us to discover his greater purpose in the midst of whatever adversity we face. In Joseph's story, we aren't told exactly why this chain of events happens. 
To accomplish God's purpose, though, God must have had something in mind. And one continuous theme throughout the story of the scriptures that can be applied to every single one of our lives is that things didn't for Joseph and don't for us happen for random reasons, like this meaningless universe is spitting things out at us. And even the darkest moments of our lives are part of a customized, personalized journey that God has, a very personal God, that he wants to do something in the midst of it, that he wants to draw us to himself. For Joseph, his trials, his hardships, his adversity, they were not random. One could speculate that God had great plans for him. But early on in Joseph's life, think about it. You go way back to the beginning of the story. He was unprepared and and, and really immature for the mantle of influence that God, it seemed, wanted to give him. Right? God was still at work, though, even though Joseph was in the place that he was. And if we observe Joseph in his younger years, we see a pattern of what we may today think of something like self-promotion or, or name-dropping or, or just trying to prop yourself up a bit so others can see how important you are. Right? When he's kind of flaunting around the sharing of the dreams, he's doing that with his brothers early on. And maybe he had thoughts that went through his mind. We're not sure, but I'm going to be so amazing or God's doing something so special beyond what other people, you know, are getting God to do in their life. Or, you know, you're not going to believe how much power I'll one day receive. Maybe that's why God didn't tell him all that. But maybe that's also thoughts that he's thinking. And these are not statements of a refined, humble servant of God. The way he essentially flaunts his calling early in his life reveals that he required refinement. Not as a punishment, but as a purification process. It does seem that pride has nudged its way into his heart. It needed to be rooted out. Sometimes pride gets into our hearts and needs to be rooted out. I mean, God knew the path and even the pain that would drive Joseph to that vulnerable place where he could clearly see who he was, who he was not, who God was, who he was not. We're no different. God is at work. God is providential. Adversity has a way of producing humility in us and keeping us dependent on God. There's a snapshot of the Apostle Paul's life in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And um, it shows us a glimpse that I think relates to this story of something that I try to always remember, especially when I'm in the, the, the moment or the season of adversity. 2 Corinthians verse 12, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited or proud because of these surpassingly great revelations, right? He's gotten this vision from heaven. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We don't know totally what it is. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, that's a powerful articulation what Paul was going through, and for us in our life, when we have the thorn in the flesh, the adversity, the trial, whatever we're going through, the pain that's there and it won't go away, that we can cling to God and that God wants to show up in that, that he wants to show himself to us in that. It's a way that God produces humility in us and teaches us and reminds us to depend on him. 
And in this whole conversation, I'm in no way implying that pain is easy, but all of our pain in a way is special because it's the path to refinement, to purification, and even more it's the path to experiencing God in a deep and more intimate, even vulnerable way. As we move through this narrative, God seems to be emptying out the pride in Joseph's life. And I don't know why, I don't know what God caused or what he didn't cause exactly, but I do know that God is there right in the midst of it, that he's at work in Joseph's life. And I also know that he's at work in yours, right in the midst of adversity. As as unpleasant as adversity can be, it does have a way of producing humility in us and dependence on God in us. And God has a way of using it to root out the pride that we don't see often that gets embedded into our hearts. Now, lately, I have been trying to teach my four-year-old to swim, Hudson. And I was at the pool with both my three- and four-year-old. And my three-year-old, Holden, has like no fear around the pool. Which, by the way, he can't swim, in case you're wondering. And so he'll play in the like shallow end around the steps. And then suddenly he'll just go, oh, I'm going to run and jump in the deep end. And so he gets up, runs around, you know, and leaps into the deep end. Usually he waits for me to get there to catch him, but not always, right? And so he, he does this one time, and I'm trying to teach Hudson, my four-year-old, to swim. And actually, he's gotten out, you know, and he's going around. He wants to jump to me. And anyway, this moment comes, and they both jump at me at one time. And I'm like, Sherry, help, you know, my wife. And uh, I catch my three-year-old and my four-year-old, I just let sink to the bottom. I've been teaching him to swim. Here's your chance, you know? <laughs> But no, I save them both. They're both okay, right? I get them back to, you know, the concrete. And, and, and Hudson comes back in, my four-year-old, and I'm, and I'm teaching him to swim, you know, teaching him to do the arm stroke. And, and you really need to swim now because I can't let that happen again. And, and so, so, he, so I'm there with him, and I'm holding him. And, and a few minutes pass, and he gains more confidence, and he, he gets a sense of the buoyancy of, you know, the water and everything. And, and, um, and then at some point, he, he turns to me, and he goes, Dad, can you let go, please, now? I'm like, Sure. He said, I got it, Dad. I'll be okay without you. And I'm thinking, okay, here we go, you know. So I let go, and he starts, you know, like pedaling his feet, pedaling his arms, like trying to float, you know. A few seconds go by, you know, anxiety, you know, fear. Dad, I need you, you know. Nope, son, you're on your own, right? That's, what I, that's, how I, that's the right way to respond, like as a dad, right? No, of course. I didn't do that. No, I grabbed him. And I said, oh, I'm right here. I've been standing right here the whole time. Of course, I was waiting for him to do that. I knew what would happen. And I think that's a metaphor in life sometimes, that we sort of want to push God away in our own way. Say, God, I'm okay. I'm doing fine. I'm fine without you. And it's sometimes not until the adversity comes. It's sometimes not until the anxiety or fear or the moment in life that we feel like we're drowning that we call on God. God, I need you. Come closer. I need your help. And I think it brings me to this this truth that that we need God. Whether we're in adversity or not, God wants to draw us. And sometimes he uses adversity to draw us, right, to stay right there by our side. He wants to do something in the midst of that. And this leads to what is possibly, I think, the most important takeaway from this particular place or this narrative in scripture. It's found in a phrase that's repeated throughout the story of Joseph over and over. It's what the scriptures guide us to focus on when we are going through trials and adversity. It's a thing that God wants us to know deep down at the core of our being. And it's this, that he is with you. We read on several occasions in the 
narrative of Joseph that God was with Joseph. When he, was set, when he was sold to Potiphar, when he went to prison because of false accusations, when he was put in charge of all the prisoners, through it all, God was with Joseph. And God will be and God is with you, no matter what you go through. I've wondered about this phrase and studied it pretty deeply, this phrase, with Joseph. What does that really mean? And I've gone back to the Hebrew, the original language that the Old Testament was written in. What does this word with mean? And it's the most emphatic kind of word in the Hebrew language that you could have. And it's a word in this context that means this, closely identified with someone, closely identified with someone. The word encompasses this idea that you relate to someone as intimately close by your side in a way that transcends circumstances. That's what it means to be with someone. That's what it means that that God was with Joseph. And the joy of knowing God is intimately with us can transcend the pain of our temporal circumstances, as difficult as they may be. See, God's promise to every one of us is to always be with us. In fact, he's waiting right by our side. He's waiting for us to notice that he's been right there the whole time. You know, back in the 90s when they had those 3D pictures where, where you look into the picture initially and you have to refocus your eyes in the right way to see like the other picture that's in the picture that you can't see with a normal focus. You know what I'm talking about? All right, so you see like, I don't know, waves or something and, and you have to like refocus your eyes so that you can see the beautiful school of dolphins that's in that picture. Right, and I remember being a kid and my friends could all see the dolphins and they were enlightened and just having a beautiful moment. You know, I could see it. And I'm like, you know, like doing this. Like, I, I can't see it. And I was frustrated. You know, I can't see it. And I think that's sort of a metaphor of, of this idea that, that when we go through adversity, we see one thing. We see the pain. Right? We see the adversity. We see that it's hard. We, we feel the confusion. But we don't focus our eyes quite right to see God in the midst of it. That God is with us and he will always be with us. Right, that he's right there. And if we read the story of Joseph at first glance, we may only see the continuous adversity he faces. But if that's all we see, we miss the whole thing. If we look long enough and with the exact right amount of focus into this story, what our eyes will eventually see is the incredible message that God was with Joseph in the midst of pain and trials. And that's the same truth that can be real in your life. God desires for us, every one of us, to have an uncommon perspective. To have an uncommon perspective. It's a gift that comes over many years often of walking with God. And for Joseph, it wasn't until years later that he gained the right and godly perspective of all the complexities and hardships of this life. We don't always see with this perspective in our own story. Sometimes it's really hard. We're in it. We're in the trial. We're in the pain. But we do get to look into Joseph's story and learn from his narrative. Hopefully we can discover and hold on to the truth that will change our perspective as we go through adversity. There's a profound set of verses near the tail end of the story. If I fast forward through some of the rest of the details that I encourage you to read at some point if you're unfamiliar. But Joseph is speaking with his brothers, and it's far after the betrayal and the cruelty that he experienced at their hands. They're still feeling guilty for what they did years ago to, to, to their youngest brother. And listen to these words chapter 50 toward the end of the story but joseph said to them don't be afraid they come guilty and you know i'm in am i in the place of god am 
I in the place of God? Implying, no. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The people that had essentially betrayed him. That they didn't deserve forgiveness. That they didn't deserve for someone to speak kindly to them. But his perspective that was uncommon. That's uncommon in our day. The perspective that God intended it for good. I mean, do you believe that when you're going through something hard? When, when someone in your life has even intentionally done something to damage you? Do you believe that, that God wants to redeem it? Right, this is so significant as it relates to our orientation toward God and life. And I know, and I know that you know, that, that life can be incredibly confusing and painful, but what you believe about the why can change your perspective. You know that sort of old story of the guy picks up the girl to go on a date. Um, He goes into her house, and just coincidentally, the father is cleaning his rifle in the middle of the living room. Right? (laughs) You have a daughter. (laughs) And, um, you know, he he says to to the son... Or I'm sorry, not the son. He says to the you know guy who's going to date his daughter. He he says, "What are your intentions for my daughter?" Right, and the the guy's scared probably, which is the whole point of the father, right? But he's and 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 then the guy goes, "My intention is to marry your daughter, and from today to the day we get married and beyond, I hope I will treat her with the uttermost respect." And from that moment, that father trusts him. It changes everything. He puts the rifle away, maybe even, right? But it, it's all about intentions. When we trust the intentions of someone, our entire perspective changes. Even when we are forced to live with the uncertainty and pain that a relationship brings to our lives. The dad in that story probably at that point goes, okay, go have fun on the date. Right? And, and he trusts the intention. And this passage of scripture reassures us, it certainly does me, of something profoundly important, that God's intentions for you and for me are good. Often we're not able to recognize that until we're looking back, until we're on the other side of adversity. When we're in the cisterns, the prisons, the injustice, the abandonment, all we can see is the pain and the darkness sometimes. But in hindsight, we're able to see with this uncommon perspective that God's intentions were for our good, to redeem us, refine us, purify us, meet us with his presence, and to cultivate a deeper fulfillment not based on temporal happiness but based on an intimate knowing of him. Soren Kierkegaard, the famous philosopher, said this, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. I love that. This is the great challenge of life, to make sense of what often seems meaningless, to live forwards, believing that there is a God who loves us And wants our best. Yet for purposes greater than we can fully understand, he allows suffering to go on. Joseph's words are like anchors for us to hold on to as we face the storms of ongoing adversity. And I know that some of you, I imagine at least, are are in it now. You're in some season or moment of adversity. And here's what we all can remember. That people, they may intend to harm us. They may have intended to harm us. But God intends to bless us. 
to redeem our circumstances, to use them to establish a deeper intimacy with Him. He is good and His work is providential. He is at work in your life. He is always with you. God's purpose will always, always, always transcend the injustices, the trials, the adversities, the illnesses, the betrayals, all those things we face in life. And God's voice to us is this. My intention for you is good. And part of every one of our journey with God is to believe that and trust Him. No matter what pain, it's not easy. But that's the perspective he wants us to hold on to. And when we look at this whole narrative about Joseph, it reminds me of one final thing. It reminds me that there's another Joseph. His name is Jesus. Because Jesus was betrayed by some of his closest relationships. Jesus was falsely accused, unfairly imprisoned, ultimately crucified, although he had never sinned against God or anyone else. But in the midst of it all, he turned his face to the Father, And he trusted that the Father had a greater purpose, that the Father's will was in the works, that providence was happening. And Jesus is our example to cling. He's who we cling to. He's what we look to when we're in the midst of adversity. And Jesus actually, for him, chose to suffer. In fact, chose to be crucified on our behalf so that we could be free, so that we could be healed, so that we could one day, when this life is over, for those who receive the gift of salvation, the gift of grace, that Jesus died on the cross for us to forgive us of our sins so we can spend forever with him. For those of us, at one point, at one day, we will cross over and there will be no more pain and there will be no more adversity, no more trials, no more hardships, that joy will fill us forever and ever. Because Jesus came to save you so that one day that pain in life is no more. But until then, for reasons that go beyond what we could fully understand, we are called to walk through the adversities of life with our face turned to the Father, trusting that His intentions are good, trusting that Jesus has a greater purpose. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And I want to close with this passage in the book of Hebrews that captures the essence of who Jesus was and intersects this story. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, many have gone before us, many have faced much adversity, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We're all in a race. There's a race marked out for us. Let us run with perseverance. Right, Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus in the midst of your adversity. Cling to who he is. Trust in his intention. Trust that he is walking there with you. In fact, he's right by your side and he's saying, turn to me, turn your face to me. Trust that I have a greater purpose, that I have a redemptive purpose that's far bigger than you can fully understand. And we were brought to this moment to ask ourselves at least three questions that I'll leave you with. Are we humble enough to admit that we need God when we're going through adversity? 
Are we open to depending on his presence, the God who promises to be with us every step of the way? And are we patient enough to gain the God perspective that only can come over time? There's a song that's going to play in a moment, a song that the words of it, the truth of it, I have clinged to at times in my life, that God will never let you go in the storms of life. And no matter what you're going through this morning, if you're in that season of adversity now, hold on to these words and the truth of it. Let it shape your perspective. Let it comfort you and strengthen you. For those who are fortunate enough not to be in adversity right now, you know as well as I do that adversity will come again. So again, hold on to this truth, to these words, to what the message of this song says. And before the song plays, I'm going to pray with you. Let's bow together. Father, we pause and we thank you for the invitation to be in relationship with you. And although we don't always understand the adversities and pain and trials of life, like Joseph, give us the right perspective. Give us the God perspective. Draw us to you. Do your work. May we be open to you. May we humble ourselves before you. May we cling in dependence upon you. May we be drawn to you. And God, I specifically pray for those in this room and at our campuses right now. They're going through something very hard. That your presence would be real to them right now. That you would comfort them and strengthen them. That you would heal them and remind them you're right there with them. May the voice of love infuse their soul right now. I pray that in Jesus' name.